This episode is dedicated to Jonathan Johnson, Pulver, Ray Friedman, and Cesar Alvarez Jr. for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Dan. This is Jason. And this is Fight hey. Study. Today, we have a very special fight study. We have MMA analyst Dan Tom, and we have MMA coach Jason Sargas to talk to us about UFC 266. But before we get to that, on the same day as UFC 266, we had undisputed cruiserweight boxing champion Alexander Usyk defeating unified heavyweight champion Anthony Joshua to become a two-division unified champion, one of only three. Jason, I know you caught this one. Tell us your impressions of the fight. Well, I, I thought it was going to be an interesting uh, matchup uh, from the jump. And uh, what I'm not sure, I mean, everyone should realize this, but they didn't even state it in the commentary, which was a little bizarre. Um, Usyk was trained uh, by Lomachenko's father early in his amateur, early in his amateur career. So if you notice some of the Lomachenko footwork that you saw in, in the Anthony Joshua fight, I mean, that that comes, I mean, they're both Ukrainian, obviously, uh, Loma and, and Usyk, but uh, they've both worked um, extensively with um, Anatoly Lomachenko. And, uh, you know, everyone knows Vasily Lomachenko's style. And there was a little bit of that, I mean, not even a little bit, a significant amount of it. In uh, in this, this fight against Joshua, both southpaws too. Yeah, both fight uh, with uh, with the right hand lead. Both southpaws, um, both have that that um, that little step pivot shift uh, to set up that outside angle. And uh, you know, I thought I really thought AJ, you know, Anthony Joshua doesn't get enough credit for being um, an incredibly fundamentally sound heavyweight. Because he gets, uh, you know, he gets he gets shit on a little bit because of how much muscle he carries. Uh, they talk about what a like what a genetic outlier and physical outlier he is. I mean, he's big, he's strong, he's fast, he has all the physical tools. And sometimes I think they like to just lump him in um, and define him based solely on his physical attributes, when really he is he's an excellent heavyweight, um, and he's he's shown it time and time again. He can box. He's fundamentally sound. Uh, he's big. He's strong. He's pat. He's fast. Um, and for for a big man carrying that much muscle, he does a very good job of of like measuring his his uh, cardio and anaerobic output so as not to gas. Um, though he has in the past, but that's I mean that's sort of what you get. Someone that size is a different lactic acid threshold and different glycogen consumption and different physiological needs than someone who's not carrying that kind of muscle. And did you think that Usyk would take this one? No, I really didn't. I thought the given the punching power and his ability to find that shot, that AJ would, would have found it eventually. And early in the fight, he just missed. If you see some of those right hands, and this is a credit to uh, Usyk's defense uh, and vision on the inside, 
some of those just just missed and they were nice straight well-timed shots that they just missed and i think if any of those land early um you know seeing in, in the later rounds like uh what was it the eighth round i think was the, the seventh or the eighth round was aj's best round i think um coming after a really good round for Usyk in round seven and that in that eighth round he found that nice tight right hand that he just kind of threw out there straight a little shoulder a uh, little shoulder rotation and not a lot on it but it stunned him and then later in that round after throwing that, that nice tight right hand that split the guard he threw one that started the same but just looped around and he was able to change that trajectory because he didn't overcommit to the shot. He didn't put too much behind it, but he punched around Usyk's guard and landed another right hand. But because he had to take some of that, some of the some of the steam off of it, one for greater accuracy, and two, I mean, we're in the second half of the fight, and cardio being being what it was, um, started to started to play some sort of some role uh, in that decision making. But after that round. Rounds nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, you saw um, Usyk start to pull away, and I thought by round eight or round nine, AJ would have found one of those big shots. And when he didn't, after his best round in round eight, I didn't figure it was coming afterwards. Real quick, Jason is so much better at describing the the, the body cardio thing than uh, how Rogan does it. You know, like if, if Rogan could just like even do some semblance of what Jason just did, I feel like he wouldn't get as much crap. I think it'd be much more realistic to the broadcast. You know, like I've never heard it explained so well for what that's worth. <laughs> I appreciate that. But different muscle systems and different body types require, you know, uh, di- have different energy consumption, and uh, you know, we're not we're not all built the same and since we are governed by uh, some some drug testing criteria, we can't just throw as many steroids at the wall and say, ah, none of us are, are meeting our genetic potential like Joe and company do whenever they can just sort of dabble in performance-enhancing drugs. So right. The, certain guys in, in uh, drug-tested sports are sort of, at least to some extent, um, uh, chastened by their genetics. Having watched it now, do you think Usyk was having the fight of his life or do you think it was more about Usyk being a tough matchup against Joshua? I think like those aren't mutually exclusive possibilities. I mean, I think Usyk fought an incredible fight. He really did. He came in with a good game plan. Um, and I thought AJ was, was looking really sharp given the, the movement that he had to contend with from, uh, from Usyk. You know, um, Usyk started out with an excellent game plan. He was lead hand checking, um, checking uh, AJ's jab hand, um, and that that's good for him. You know, knowing that that Josh was the bigger the bigger fighter with the bit and the bigger puncher, you get to do two things whenever you start playing that little hand check game. Maybe even three. You know, it's a good rhythm disruptor, um, and it serves not only to hide like that Loma style footwork to make that outside angle. But it also keeps AJ's right hand at a longer distance. Establishing this early is incredibly important because it proves to be an excellent strategy throughout the first half of the fight. It occupied AJ's lead hand, took away the setups for his right hand. So there was minimal explosive offense coming from, from AJ's power side early in that fight where he's 
most dangerous. That being said, AJ started to take his foot off the gas, not in a bad way. He didn't punch himself out of position, um, which was inspired thinking. He didn't overcommit. But at the same time, the brilliance of Usyk's game plan is neither did he. Being the smaller fighter and he had to break down that distance, he didn't overcommit to do so. He did it cleanly, um, staying defensively responsible while scoring quite a bit. So I thought it was some some game planning mastery from from Usyk and probably his camp and coaching staff. Some some excellent counter game planning from Joshua in his camp, but Usyk's footwork and his ability to continue that over twelve rounds and and avoid any big big shots. I mean, he got hit with some, but they weren't super clean. I think that's that's the difference maker. All right, let's get into it. UFC 266, probably one of the few cards people were excited about this year. And from the prelims to the main card, it delivered mostly. Let's start with the main event. Alexander Volkanovsky defeated Brian Ortega to retain his featherweight title in a lopsided decision. This was Volkanovsky's second title defense and first title fight that wasn't Max Holloway which gave us a look at what it looks like when it's not Holloway. This was Ortega's second title fight, which in my opinion was weird because he lost to Holloway soundly and in three years only had one other fight, the Korean Zombie. And after that one fight, he was already back at a title shot. So it's not just about whether he deserved it or not, but maybe he needed some other fights in between. Because now you have him in a situation where he's lost two title fights badly in three fights. Let's start with you, Dan. What were your thoughts going into this fight as far as how their styles matched up, followed by your thoughts about both their performances? Um, in a basic way, going in, I thought their style dynamic was pretty much you had the dynamic finisher in Ortega, whereas the champion Volkanovski. You had more of a technically layered game, a more process-driven fighter, um, more strategy um, adaptations and whatnot. So it was how well could he control and navigate in his desired path without falling into the potential pitfalls on the feet in transition or on the floor with Ortega. Um, we essentially saw that dynamic play out. Uh, we, we saw Ortega try to take some of the tools, I think, uh, early with some of the, you know, trying to do some checking jabs of his own. Uh, some some strong leg kicks, although they were more to the thigh, whereas Volkanovski following the trend of today more to the calf. So we got to see a lot of these um, dynamics play out. And uh, the striking to even the scares in round three, which I'm sure we'll get to, none of that necessarily surprised me that they happened or that Volkanovski survived them. I did pick him officially by decision. So with the outcome, I guess I can't say that um, I was surprised. I just more kind of came to a realization of the point you you mentioned, Sam, as far as this is what we rushed this kid Ortega into, and and, and I kind of had more of those questions uh, leaving with it. Jason, what did you think going into this fight? And really, what did you think about Ortega's performance as far as did he fight a bad fight or this was like actually him fighting really well? Volkanovski was just that much better. Uh, I think that's a great question. I think. Uh, you can't take any, anything away from Volkanovski's performance. 
um, his ability to find power shots, especially that right hand, um, to go for, uh, I believe uh, Dan just described it as like layered um, offensive strategy. That gives you, because he's not, he's not spamming wild things. He's not, it becomes a little bit less, I don't want to say noticeable, but a little more nuanced that he is, he's able to put the pieces together as he wants to get the fight to unfold um, as he hopes it will. And when you start to see that, if you start to watch some of his other fights, you see that happen time and time again, and it's sort of a process to it. Um, I thought that uh, that Ortega made it difficult for him to do that at times, but because he couldn't completely take that away, um, the damage started to accumulate. Um, and credit to uh, and credit to Ortega, he can take a shot, and he's as game as they come. I just don't think you know you don't because he's as game as they come. I don't think you give him an extra forty five seconds to a minute and a half in between rounds to be that game, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, whatever fuckery was afoot there, we can discuss later. But you know, um, it was it was uh, Volkanovski doing what he does well. And if you thought that he was disrupted a little bit, that's because uh, Ortega's a good fighter, um, but he's got some vulnerabilities against the elite. And you know, you show me a guy that that we all know can take a punch. I'll show you a guy that's taken a lot of punches and that's sort of how Ortega has begun to be uh, defined, at least when he gets to the higher level, um, the higher levels of this game. And there's no higher level than a world title fight in the UFC at this point. Watching Volkanovsky's performance in this fight, any concerns about his chin? For me? No, none. I think he's, I think he was, like I said, he fights like he has a helmet on. I mean, he can take a punch. He really can. Um, he, he shifts and moves in a way that he doesn't necessarily get hit flush all the time. But he takes enough offensive chances. And he's got like a, a kick-heavy attack where he can get countered once in a while. Um, but I think, I think his chin is incredibly durable. What did you think about Volkanovsky staying in his guard even after the close submissions? And how do you think he survived that? Um, wow. It's like uh, the normal impulse and, and response from the human brain to avoid danger doesn't really exist in Volkanowski's head. <laughs> um, and I, I don't think it's really fair that he gets the criticism he does because he is um, like layered in his approach to, to breaking down elite opponents um he gets shit on a little bit so uh it doesn't mean that he can't fight like his hair is on fire when he wants to or when he has to and he can certainly bring it when he wants to bring it um do i think that was a great idea uh, absolutely not i think it would have been in his best interest to keep the fight standing but as soon as i said that and i think I, I was about to text that to you and i deleted it um he starts blasting him with ground and pound and turns what was a back and forth round into a potential potential ten eight round. So he sort of he sort of defies logic, and like my normal coaching response would have been to stay out of his guard, stay out of his guard. What are you doing? And then he would have made me look silly, <laughs> and I'd have been taking it back immediately after I said it. 
he did credit his cardio for how he survived those submission attempts. Do you think having really good cardio can help you survive choke attempts in particular? I think if it was an arm bar, what's cardio going to do for you, right? But for chokes, do you think it helps? Um, I don't know the science behind it, but I imagine that there's something to the the fighter brain uh, engaged in fight or flight scenarios that says, hey, um, our oxygen needs and oxygen consumption being what it is, we're fine here for a little bit. Whereas like me, I've got asthma and bad lungs and I think I can fight through anything. But next thing I know, I'm snoring. Right. but so I, I think there might be something something to that, um, but I'm not sure of the science behind it. I know city kickboxing people have recently incorporated uh, underwater training where they go underwater, hold their breath, and do a lot of breathing exercises to be able to hold their breath for a long time. So I wonder if some of that has helped too. I believe that, that there might be some 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 merit to that i mean i wouldn't buy the the boss root and breathing device or training <laughs> <mask>. <laughs> yeah ever <laughs> but but there might be some it might be some merit to that the people who wear those masks for exercise won't wear a mask for any other reason even in a pandemic so there's <laughs> yep. some irony there <laughs> it, it's absolutely amazing I mean, we, we can get to that um i can't i can't work out with that thing on but you are working out with a worse version of that intentionally, and we can go in. We can go in depth on and why that won't work, like why the why the, that mask doesn't work. I don't think it does anything except maybe maybe exercise the lungs a little bit. But if you think that that's going to add any like adaptive mechanism of greater red blood cell production, you're out of your mind because that's not that's not how that shit works. It's just not. That got debunked like ten years ago when. Wanderlei Silva was doing something similar. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't have the snorkel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was like duct tape. So he couldn't tear it off even if he wanted to. So he was forced to train in that. Oh, man. <laughs> that was miserable. Dan, do you think Ortega burned himself out or maybe had an adrenaline dump after the near submissions? Absolutely. Um, you know, he, him having crazy third rounds is not, uh, you know, uh, obscure by any means. If you look at his sample size, uh, he's very much like a Yoel Romero in that aspect. Again, you know, a, a dynamic uh, opportunistic finisher, a lot of similarities there from that regard, obviously different, different styles of fighter there. Uh, so not, it wasn't surprising that he had that, but I do believe, and it parlays into the conversation you guys just had about cardio is that, you know, I, I, like Jason, I'm sure there's some scientific and, and some stuff during before, and that helps those, you know, fight or flight mechanisms. Um, undeniably, especially if you're honest about your mental, uh, status, when, even if you're just a, a grappler listening to this, we've, your, your, your mind will, will dictate a lot of what, what happens in there. Right. Um, that being said, there's nothing like good old technique. And I also believe that inherently it shouldn't matter as much because in those situations, um, a quote, the late great Robert Fallis, he would call it uh, whenever a fighter puts down the pack, you feel them exhale and get tired. And almost everybody does that, whether you're a high level fighter or like average Joe in your grappling uh, evening class is when they get something like a triangle, especially, and they will just kind of burn out on it. And someone posted a clip of Volkanovsky using that same elbow to C clamp to the inside thigh frame uh, as just like a survival frame while he was inside a triangle. And he's trying to talk while he's in it. And he's saying, it's okay, I'm going to let him burn himself out. And I saw people poking fun at that, but that's actually like a legitimate 
I couldn't think of the old school mid-aught Brazilian gi grappler, Brazilian guy with a beard most of the time in footage, really mangled ears, but his whole game was like, I'm going to let you uh, triangle me because my my defense is so good and the, the type of passes and opportunities when you break that um, you know, are so plentiful because back to Fallis' quote, you feel your opponent almost proverbially put down the pack. So assuming you have generally good defense and at least good enough to have survived to that point, uh, I think inherently you should already be at a cardio advantage, and that's when you should be hitting the gas. And and that's when I would do it as a very unathletic, uh, not good uh, martial arts practitioner. And I would find my, m- most of my successes at those points. So even though it seemed kind of crazy that Volkanovsky uh, was going into it, I think he felt uh, the answer to your question, Sam, which is why he went to it. And on that note, very few fighters, I don't know, I, I think fighters make questionable decisions all the time in and out of the cage. That's not what I want to say, but very few fighters do it in a stylistic way and put you in awe. Like, I think my earliest memories are probably like the Randy Couture's when he was doing outlying stuff. Then you've got GSP in certain style matchups where you're like, is he really going to out-wrestle the wrestler? What? Right? And this is kind of like how I initially thought Chandler versus Oliveira was going to play out, which is why I picked Chandler because Chandler has a lot of that same attitude Volkanovski does and has the you know, submission defense to, to kind of back that up. The, the chin, maybe not so much in Chandler's case, uh, whereas I agree with Jason's take on Volkanovsky's chin. So seeing him embrace all those tools and go right back into the belly of the beast was uh, was very inspiring. I don't want to overdo it here and make any like Michael Jordan parallels, but we don't have any of these real parallels in the sport. And uh, very few guys can just awe me in that stylistic way like Volkanovsky did. And anybody who's grappled, if you put somebody in a rear naked choke, even if they get out, your arms don't really burn out. But the two submissions where you will burn out is the guillotine choke, especially when the arm is in, and the triangle choke. Yep. And so he went for those back-to-back, and those are the most energy-intensive ways to choke somebody. So I believe he had a really hard time getting up after that round. And I think it wasn't just because he was getting beat up, but also he was burned out. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think you're right there, Sam. There's a, a massive energy expenditure in both of those, especially if you're if you're the like the dynamic finisher that is fully committed to it, like uh, like Ortega is, and he went to went to both. And both he, uh, especially the guillotine, he tends to finish, right? So there is also that thought of I don't have to pace myself if I go all in on this, I am out of here. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to steal the show with this. And he's, he's in it a hundred percent. He's all in, doesn't get it, gets a second opportunity, 100% all in. And that's why, I mean, I don't like the extra time that he got, but people saying that because he didn't just uh, sprint back to the corner or jump right up, that he didn't answer the bell, have no idea what it is like to be that physically fatigued. (laughs) So I think there's, there's some of that combined with like he didn't quit like like the average human being or even the a very good fighter normally would have the beating he took after being so exhausted was pretty impressive um both having dished it a scene that dished out and credit to to Volkanovski and it was still as impressive having seen a human being endure it so um if he wants to take a take another second or two before he goes back to his corner hey Fine by me. I don't like the <laughs> I don't like the ref uh, asking him seventeen times and showing him just one finger point blank to his nose. How many How many do I have up? But everything else, 
I'm fine with. Now, Dan, after the zombie fight, the UFC commentators were saying this was a new Ortega. Volkanovsky said it's the same Ortega, and he just looked like that because zombie is flat-footed. Do you think this was a different Ortega than the one that fought Holloway? It was. Uh, I feel like, like many things, it's kind of a you know, some of both parts. The the truth lies in the middle. Uh, I think to Ortega's own admission, it was a different Ortega in the zombie fight um, because he simply did things like wrestled and attached kicks and things, again, Ortega admitted himself he just didn't do. Um, so it really didn't take much to, you know, bolt on to the proverbial uh, ship to make it look like a different, uh, you know, different sailing vessel. You know, he goes out, switches his stance, even though he always switched stance, but he primarily fought from a southpaw stance, which we saw him do against Volkanovsky. Uh, but to Volkanovsky's credit, I also agree with him because it wasn't, you know, and I use the word layered, Ortega's wasn't layered. Um, as somebody who fights from southpaw, uh, primarily, um, it was real easy to see that it was pretty much all checking shots from the right side, the lead side, and it was setting up opportunistic power from the rear. And that was good. That was smart outfighting that you needed to do against a guy like Korean Zombie who has pocket counters that'll just make you pay. Um, and, and you know, and then sure, the spinning elbow definitely helped send the, the fight in his trajectory, which was deceptively more competitive when you go back and watch it. But again, to Volkanovsky's point, without it being layered, we saw Volkanovsky, surprise, surprise, was very prepared. Um, he used a lot of the, the hand fighting, which I really enjoyed in Jason's breakdown of uh, the Joshua Usyk fight. Uh, but we saw that here again with with uh, whether they were southpaw versus southpaw or open stance pairing. Volkanovski really uh, you know abuses him on the hand fighting. He has kicks from both, uh, no matter the stance pairing, which he showed in the Max fight. Um, and and Ortega, oddly enough, had his most success we saw in that round five, uh, bringing back stuff he did from round one, which was the checking jabs and right hands and leg kicks set up from it from an orthodox stance, not his newly evolved Ortega air quotes from the southpaw stance. So. Again, I actually agree with both. I think there's there's truth in what both parties um, are saying there in regards to what was this a new Ortega or not. The one point I would make is that I, I like the Korean Zombie. Um, I think he's uh, probably one of the most entertaining fighters in the UFC. But uh, it's tough to compare the um, a Korean Zombie to a Max Holloway. They. They they bring so much, so many different things uh, in direct opposition to one another to the table that when trying to to you know use um, Ortega as your constant and then make some sort of determination, uh, it's it's tough. You know, it's like um, he's fast uh, on a three mile course, or is he fast on a twelve mile course with hills? And well, what's his mile time on each? Well, the 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 variables are so different from me from one to the other that it's tough to say. I th I agree with what Dan said, especially about the switching to conventional stance. I I made note of that when I was watching the fight. Like, he's he's fighting better this round um, from the orthodox position, and I'm not sure. I I haven't looked or put together any any film study on how um, on how Volkanovski does against southpaws. But uh, he seemed to be uh, eating up Ortega from the when Ortega was in the southpaw stance because Ortega got hit with that right hand a lot. Yeah, I don't really have much else to say given the 
the really thorough and what I would say spot on breakdown from Dan. Uh, too kind, man. Too kind. Not no problem at all. I just embarrassed myself trying to trump you. <laughs> hey, hey, Sam. Can I can I interject? I don't want to derail you, but I, I just really curious with with uh, Jason's opinion, not just because I respect his analysis, but he's got much more experience from the coaching and cornering perspective. And I know I was a bit harsh on um, kind of not just it's not just you know the corner, it's the ref, it's the officiate. If you've got any issues with a, a fight being stopped or not stopped, you know I, I feel like one of the three parties gets, you know, overly, you know, maybe, maybe you know, holds the bag too much there. So I, I definitely don't want to do that. But I know I, I definitely had issues with a lot of the stuff I saw in the corner, not just from the stoppage, but from the stuff like, you know, like uh, Tiki saying this is what's called earning it after the fourth round, which would have been the second or third time they had the chance to stop the fight, uh, depending on your perspective. And then the putting like water, if you go back and watch in that fourth round, Brian's trying to get his breath reset. And they're putting like a full bottle of water in his face to where like it shoots up into his nostrils and eyes. And it, <laughs> I, I saw that. It just seemed like an amateur, an amateur shit, shit show. I know like, hey, str- sh- we all do stupid things, stress under duress, even the corner is not the fighter. So I, I don't want to condemn someone off one sample, one fight, but they just failed a lot of checkpoints to the fact that at, th- at that point of the fight, I was like, I, I can't cut these guys slack. I got to get a real, a real, a, 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 a real coach and corner's opinion here, Jason. No slack whatsoever should be cut. It was a fucking F minus. Right, it was abysmal. The um, number one, you don't speak in cliches as if some sort of um, uh, Mickey to Rocky speech is going to <laughs> allow your fighter to flip that switch after the concussive trauma they just fucking endured. It almost sounds like they have pre-scripted one-liners so that they can sound cool on 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 the uh, on the broadcast. And I got news for everybody. The whole punch a hole in his fucking chest from Ray Longo has already been done. And it was silly then, and trying to reinvent it is silly now. So if you're not going to come at your fighter with some, some, some true technical advice, then and your fighter is seemingly lost, uh, if you looked into Ortega's eyes, when he did do that spit thing into the, because I saw it, like you said, and I made note of it too, uh, there is no, are you okay? How do you feel? And at that point, I was reminded of a quote from from my boxing coach, Billy Briscoe, who said, it's really fucking easy to be brave with another man's blood. They failed their fighter and allowed a fighter who is still young and still has championship ability to to go out. What was it? You, you don't want to say, hey, what, what's the setup to our blast double? You're just going to call out for a blast double against the guy who's not an explosive wrestler type? What are you talking about? What are you saying? And I thought it was, I thought it was shit from top to bottom. And uh, I was a little bit disappointed in the human race that day. One of the problems Ortega talked about was chaos with his camp. It was like too many people trying to take charge and it wasn't organized correctly. So he had to get rid of people, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of wondered if that happened again. There's, I'm surprised there's any oxygen left in the fucking arena with uh, the amount of oxygen that the egomaniacs in the fucking corner were trying to eat up. And at that point, it, it didn't seem like there was legitimate concern. It just seemed like it was their moment, almost like they were relishing the break in between rounds because they knew a camera would be on them. And maybe I'm being too harsh, but that's how it appeared to me as opposed to how do you feel? You just got bludgeoned. How do you feel? 
Are you, there's nothing that you got to dig deep. This is where we earn it. Earn what? And just because he can tell you what number it is, I don't think he could remember what fucking day it was. How about you try to see if your fighter is there? There wasn't even any of the Greg Jackson, like, let's just breathe and recover, breathe and recover. It's almost like a failure to even acknowledge that he took that beating. Again, you can't just 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 change the narrative because you want it to be so, as if somehow that's going to inspire your fighter. Yeah, sometimes you want to poker face things a little bit and give them the your analysis and advice in the moment um, to try to be, you know, as as measured and clinical as possible. But at the same time, like these hype speeches, when you have a compromised fighter. I mean, do you do you know nothing of human physiology? Do you know nothing of human neurology? Do you know nothing of the brain's response to, to physical trauma? It's it's again, it's a silly and ignorant approach to cornering that is like cliched from bad fucking fighter films. Sorry about that, guys. Sorry. No, no, no. Totally, I, I totally co-sign, and and I kind of struggled to answer for a second and felt bad for a guy who prides himself on his attention to detail. But but the truth is, uh. To to both your guys' points, it was chaos in the corners. Um, to the to the again by Ortega's own admission, just like he admitted that he was glad the doctor saved him, which no one saved him in this fight. Um, you know, by his own admission, uh, there was chaos in his corners. And if you look at it, there is no set guy. Like the most set presence who wasn't there is you know Henner, a guy who's you know you know no offense, I I, I feel like his his ba- his base is is uh, brand sell- brand selling before jujitsu, and then who knows what, and that's your head corner. You know, like I, I don't, you know, he's great at selling a brand, but you don't, you know, and you have a great brand Ortega, but the, this is a fight. And to, you know, Jason, I, I don't think your criticism is too harsh there because that's kind of my general criticism from the corner to even the officials who stand on the side in the suits, which I, I, I was saying on my podcast, I don't think people realize, which is why like the Greg Hardy and Haler getting so ridiculous is that like those officials, they're not supposed to be just standing there looking pretty and tough for the camera. Like they actually have to enforce again. The whole reason why the corners officials, the whole reason why they're there is to facilitate, protect, and allow the fighter to safely do their job, right? I, I'm pretty sure that's essentially the base point of all the jobs, the, the, the point of common thread that we should all be able to see eye to eye on. And it's just disgusting when Jason said, it's like, are you, is the fighter even being, is he even being looked after? I mean, the corner's not looking after him. Um, and that was something I watched is that they don't even ask if he's okay. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but you know, yes, you want your fighter to breathe, which is something else they fail to do. But like those quick beats and communication when you first get in before those, before the, uh, granted the, the guys in the jacket, the commission people don't do shit. They don't do their job, but still you don't want to communicate certain things around them. Cause if they hear, they can report it to the doctor who is usually not far behind you, especially in a really bad round like Ortega had. So as an, it, I, I, even me as a novice, uh, inexperienced cornerman, uh, I would know to okay. I need. I have that that key beat to say, "Hey, man, are you okay?" And get that key information before you can decide to play a poker game and say, "Yeah, he's fine. His knee's fine," or whatever the issue, the physical issue is with your fighter. If if you want to play that game, right? I don't know. Yeah, I think to to get that response from the corner, you would have to actually care in that moment about your fighter's well being above the promotion's uh, best interest and the entertainment value of of the fight and whatever uh, percentage they may be getting paid um if there is like any chance that they could pull off an upset i mean again it is another man's blood that they're in there playing with 
And I see things a little bit differently. I've made dog shit money from any fighter I've ever coached. So their well-being, number one, is their well-being. And it's tied with the win. Because I'm always of the mindset that if, if you tend to dominate, you tend not to get hurt as badly. So you come in there prepared, you, co- you control the things you can't control, and you come in in great shape. Um, but that being said, if your fighter um, is, is taking a substantial beating, I'll ask him in front of the ref. That way, if he answers truthfully, or the ref or the, or the ringside physician hears it, and they stop it, that's the, that's, then it's not on me. It's not on the fighter. Um, I haven't had to, to call a fight like that because uh, my guys very seldom get i mean i was i cornered the frivola fight in the ufc and he got uh starched in a minute by polo reyes so there wasn't really a chance to do anything um and uh that's i think that's my my sole uh, entry into the the ufc on the ufc banner but pfl i was in there with uh Eddie Truck Gordon, and we were getting pieced up by a guy, by a tough Russian with a jab, but there's no real, um, real fear. But I had another fighter who got his head smashed in, literally a golf ball sized dent in his forehead um, from a knee, and he bounced right back up. And if he want, if he wanted to go, I wouldn't have let him. Um, I sort of, you talk about uh, not performing well under arrest. When I saw that hole, and the, and the doctor was talking to him. After they called the fight, after they stopped the fight very quickly, as they should have, um, I it didn't register me that this man in a sweater was a doctor. He didn't seem like a doctor to me, and I was in panic mode because I was I saw a hole in my fighter's forehead. Oh man! I wonder if Ortega had a hole in his forehead, which he may have. It just might have swollen over, and no one noticed. But I wonder if any of those assholes in the corner. And yeah, they're more successful than me, and they have better fighters than me. They probably beat me up. Some of them, maybe not. Um, but I wonder if they would have stopped the fight if he did, or they would have let him go out on his fucking shield. Well, how about you don't let your fighter go out at all? I mean, you can do that. That's part of being a coach and managing a fighter. You manage their safety. That's why I was kind of surprised by Tiki Gozen being the main voice there, because if he's the manager and also the coach, it's doubly more in his financial incentive to keep this fight going, right? And uh, there's been a lot written about how a lot of managers in the UFC are not looking out for the best interest of their fighters. Nick Diaz having a similar situation, which we'll get into. But let me ask you this, Dan. Were you surprised that Henry Gracie didn't stop the fight? Because that's like his, he says that's like his brother. He considers him a family member. I was like, okay, clearly Henry Gracie is going to protect his brother, his family member, his childhood friend and stop the fight. And then I kept waiting and it didn't happen. So Dan, were you surprised at all? Obviously I took some, some Gracie shots there uh, earlier, but honestly, uh, if anything, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll speak in his defense here. Like if, if there's anyone that uh, had that humanity in them, I, I do believe that it was Henry. You go back to the Max fight, they cut away from the camera. But he's doing a, guys, 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 guys. And we all know how that is from grade school to when adults are drunk and out of hand, that guys, 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 when people are talking, they're not focusing on what needs to be focused on. And it was followed by, get the doctor, get the doctor. So that tells me he was the one um, that actually cared. Uh, so in his defense, like that, that's why I, I was citing like, where's Henner? Not that Henner is some 
end all be all like the best guy to have in your corner. But for what was needed at that point, um, you know, again, he wasn't there. So I don't even know if Henner was even at, uh, uh, in the corner because to Jason's point, everyone was so hungry to get their voice out. There was no handing of the baton. There was no sequencing like you'll see in other good corners where they go, all right, what do you got, coach? And it's, you know, there was none of that. So Henner was there behind the cage. He was kind of yelling through the cage, trying to give him, I don't know what kind of notes or encouragement while like there was another person on the other side of the cage doing the same thing. And then two people beside Ortega doing the same thing. And then Tiki right in front of his face, also giving him Rocky cliches. I'll just add really quick that you said it's doubly bad for a manager to be there. I'll say it's triply bad in, M- in MMA because yes, uh, the managers are essentially just using these guys as trading cards, um, you know, uh, to get the bigger guys in or selling, you know, smaller guys to put over bigger guys in hopes that they can get certain matchups. And you see it from their tweets uh, that are in lockstep with the promotion. And that even extends to a third leg, sadly, even into my own realm where you see a lot of journalists. Uh, you know, as well towing that line. So yeah, it's 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 super problematic for that position. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, I think you're, you're spot on. It's a a vertically integrated, um, uh, like ancestral, not ancestral, ancestral uh, symbiotic relationship between management, um, promotion, and now even even some of these gyms, like the the relationship that the gyms have. Um, and when when you don't have any separation, there is no bargaining power. When there's no bargaining power, there's there's too much promotional control. When there's too much promotional control, especially in a monopoly like the UFC, um, then the fighters are are at a significant disadvantage. And if you're if you're being cornered by your manager and your manager wants your stock to go up, he doesn't want to see you quit on the stool even if that saves you from CTE or from potential brain trauma or any other trauma for that matter. He doesn't want to see that. He doesn't want his value in you is based on your stock value to the promotion. The higher he can grow that, the better it is for him. And wanting to do that uh, to your detriment, when you are in in the midst of battle, is a problem. There's an immense conflict of interest, and um, and going back to like the the multiple voices in the corner. Like I've heard multiple voices in the corner when they were cohesive um, and, and organized and had a singular message to the benefit of the fighter. This was disjointed. It seemed, as you said, Dan. Everyone wanted to get get their their 15 seconds of glory or fame by. By be by having a cliched one liner or <laughs> saying Jeez. saying something cool as opposed to something valuable, um, like even just how do you feel? Like yeah, that's not. I mean, that's more of a greeting card moment rather than than like a fight highlight moment. But I think it would have been incredibly important to ask your fighter who had been getting bludgeoned, uh, especially after that third round, those things. To add context to this. There are a lot of times for an MMA fighter, because there's not a lot of pay, where maybe their trainer is also their manager. But situations like that, you got like two people or maybe three people at the corner, where you have the head coach slash manager in the corner. And then the two other people are like the assistants who are also just like other fighters or just people from their gym that the head trainer needed their help with carrying some of the stuff. So when you just have a small ensemble, then it makes sense that 
the head coaches, everything. But Ortega had like a whole team of highly paid people, right? And it didn't seem clear who was in charge of it. So this is a different situation where it's like he had five different coaches for five different arts. And I remember in the countdown, it didn't show Tiki as the head coach. It showed somebody else. But then all of a sudden, the manager is acting as the head coach. That's why this stuck out is because this wasn't a small operation where you might see that, where it's appropriate, where the head trainer is also the manager just by default because they're just a small team right now and the fighter is just starting to work their way up. Whereas with Ortega, it didn't make sense. And my gut feeling was in round one, it wasn't like this, but by round two, and especially after round three, it became like this. The more they felt like they were losing this fight, the more it became chaotic. And I think a good camp, when you're in a bad situation, they keep it together. And if anything, they shine in those moments. Whereas this, they were just falling apart. So it was like a camp that's kind of like front runners where they're good when they're doing good and they do even worse when they're doing bad. Yep. And can I just add one thing that as far as egos go, the, the ironic part is the egos, the ego problem should have been in, in Volkanovsky's corner on paper. You've got Eugene Behrman, who is, you know, uh, all this, you know, all this credit and acclaim, which I, I'm not hating on. I just always get upset that his other coach in the corner, George Lopez, who has been Volkanovsky's main coach the whole time, like never gets a shout, which is why I'm glad Anik made it a point to do that. And then you either have Brad Riddell, who's usually in his corner, an active fighter, though this time I think it was Jamie Malarkey, his Australian freestyle MMA training partner. So again, fighters slash active fighters. I'm sure there's no ego there. <laughs> um, so you have all these big egos, right? And look how cohesive they were. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's not even an excuse. So it really shows uh, unhealthy egos really just tell on themselves. And uh, especially when, you know, as people, you know, have, have no right to be bumping their chest. And to your point, Sam, you're right. It was a different person in the countdown. So when, you know, you get in live fire situations, which is why they all say train under duress for, you know, from military to firearm instruction and stuff like that. Like, well, if the fighter doesn't know who the head coach is, how are the other coaches going to know who to defer to, right? Like, for example, like, um, I'll, I'll throw John Crouch in there. He's kind of popping up. Uh, I, you know, uh, regardless what, what what feelings, or I know that they had a split with their fighters, but I, I do like how, you know, I, I'm not there. I only could judge from the outside, but I like how Crouch runs his corner and it seems like he gets that respect from his and gives his other guys respect. If there's another coach, a uh, fighter there, he'll call him coach and give them their time to give advice and whatnot. And, and there's like a healthy flow. And, and, and yeah, none of that before take this corner. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Next, we have the women's flyweight title fight, where champion Valentina Shevchenko stopped Lauren Murphy in round four. It was an unusually high volume performance from Shevchenko and an unusually low volume performance for Murphy. Jason, let's start with you. Thoughts about this fight? Uh, well, 
Uh, to start off, I think uh, Valentina Shevchenko gets uh, a little more grief than she probably deserves. Um, I, I do understand that she's not a super high volume uh, striker, but she hasn't really had to be. Um, and asking her to, to fight outside of what she does well is very Dana White-esque. And I think he's a fucking idiot. So um, that's where I'll start it. Um, as I as I tank my coaching career right then and there. Not even coaching career. If you ever wanted to get into media, there goes your credentials right there. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not covering those guys. Never, never. It's basically just a a, a PR campaign for the the unholy evil empire that's become mixed martial arts. Um, anyway, I digress. Uh, Shevchenko does some really great stuff when people come forward or when people, when people try, try to faint to draw out her counters, how many times has she hit a real nice spinning back kick when got, when the women that she is competing against try to like stall it out with like to, to in, initiate a flinch or um, a twinge or to get her to, to try to, you, you want to fight a counter fighter? Like you want to throw them off, start out with some feints and fakes. When they do that and they stand in front of her, she just she'll spinning back kick and send you across the cage. <laughs> so it's not like she's just sitting there killing time either. Like the counter to that is I think if she started to come forward, if Valentina started to come forward more often, you would get people just sort of fading back because I don't think a lot of people want that heat, let alone that smoke. You know, I mean, it's she, the woman can fight and fight very well. Um, yeah, she tends to lull you to sleep at times, but just long enough so that she can actually put you to sleep with a head kick. So um, th that being said, um, she uh, every once in a while she will bore me, and I do get sort of like the alt right vibe from her sometimes. So uh, <laughs> I, I was I was really pulling for Murphy, but uh, yeah, Murphy's a, a a tough fighter. She just doesn't have the the physical tools or the goods uh, against. A fighter who ha who seems to have them all. She's uh, Shevchenko is one of the things because she's not ridiculously ripped. I think we've had this discussion on on other on other episodes. She's still very strong. You can just see how she controls people from that clinch position. Yeah, she's got great technique with her trips and some of her throws. But how you get into a lot of those hip positions, at least from the body lock position, the fifty fifty over under, some of these clinch positions, is from being strong. And you can see that that she against people that look physically more built than she, than she does, she is able to to generate that or decrease that distance by generating squeeze with like backs in her her posterior chain, and then as soon as she gets like three hips in a row, she's sending someone ass over elbows. One thing I wanted to add was that. I think a lot of MMA camps, when they're training their fighters for wrestling and especially defensive wrestling, they are defending against a lot of double legs, which isn't a bad idea because that is going to be the most common entry, even into a clinch. Sometimes you just get in a double leg and then you come up for a clinch. I think on top of strength, a lot of her opponents are not used to somebody who only uses a body lock. Like... If it was an arm wrestling contest with Valentina and Jessica Andrade, I don't know if Shevchenko is going to win. But once she had the body lock, it seemed like Andrade didn't know what to do. So I think it's a combination of Shevchenko is stronger than 
she appears. And secondly, she is very good at a type of wrestling that a lot of her opponents are not prepared for. Absolutely. It's the, it's her hip positioning. She, she makes up the angle on the hips all the time. She always beats you to three hips in a row. And she just kind of sets you back, sets you back over her knee. Um, and there's, there's, there's something to be said about that, that technique where positioning is everything you can make, right. You can make a big throw look great just based on sitting in a chair and popping your hips. And, and that's, and she doesn't even finish hers like that. She just sort of buckles you back and turns. Uh, and because you, you can't really get distance on her. If you try to get that, your hips back, she's going to knee in the stomach and it's going to hurt you because she throws them fast, um, and well-placed. And while she's, while she's returning that hip to the mat, if you create space or while she's returning that, the, the leg that she needs you with, um, you're decreasing space because you don't want to be at that distance and take another one. And so she'll go from like a knee strike to finishing that body lock and just kind of dumping you back like it's nothing. And there is a ton of technique involved. Um, at the, at the same time, because whenever she does, and this is why I think her grappling's overrated. When she's on top, she just sort of like pulls you into her and does whatever she wants against really, really well-established grapplers who are high pedigreed. And I think that there is a little bit of a, a, a holy shit thing once she grabs a hold of you, which some people that, that aren't shredded tend to have. And I think, I think she might be one of them. I don't know. I've never, I've never grappled her. Absolutely. I, I hate to, yeah, I try to do less of the, uh, they're built different talk or, you know, these people from this part of the world are like this, certain things, right? However, there is a bit of that built different, a bit of that factor with Shevchenko. In breaking it down, I completely agree with everything you guys said about the hips and, you know, to, 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 to do a little Joe Rogan here. What about those legs? Because, you know, the legs too, you know, of course, play a factor in that. But um, it, it is funny, and I, I just, just wanted to leave this note, if you guys agree. It, for me, I kind of compare it with golf, um, which um, I, I, I guess I, I, I dabbled in a little bit and, and played a little bit of. And one thing that, like, I, I remember being told to me in a lot of the things, it's like, one was it taught me a lot about fundamentals uh, because the person who taught me w w would say that like all these fundamentals that I'm, that are being taught about the swing, you can actually look and see golfers not do that. And that was kind of my first realization that pros, you know, they don't always do things by fundamentals. They can get away with things. And the other thing that golf taught was that you didn't even have to look at the fundamentals. Sometimes you could just listen to someone, how hit, so, uh, how someone hit a ball and you could tell how good their form was. Right. And I feel like with Shevchenko, if especially people who know what they're what they're looking at, um, I'm I, I'm sure you guys got this vibe too when she first came on the scene. Just watching her do pads and do basic uh, punch return drills with big gloves uh, with her sister, just the, just hearing the the point of contact, the thud that she was making with her shots was just like that's different. That's going to be tough for a lot of girls to deal with because a lot of the female fighters and you still hear them openly admit and suggest and proclaim different strategies there's still not a unified set on this much less uh, uh access but training partners is some girls go oh, i train with the guys so I, i'm ready for that power where other girls are more realistic and understand that you even if you're training with guys you're not going to get that equal playing field um d depending on how how the training and the relationship the training partner there's a lot of factors in there whereas you get a little bit more of an honest assessment maybe with having some some female sample size to go with uh, there's obviously truth in both, you know, I'm sure there's benefits in both, 
But what Shevchenko forces these girls is really kind of forces them to answer that kind of question and disparity that I think a lot of the the women's division is still trying to work out. And you have technical power, um, you know, the precision, composure, and all these things in a Shevchenko. And it really, you know, forces fighters like Murphy, who otherwise I would tell you is just super underrated and had more of a chance than the odds showed. Um, she almost looked like an even bigger underdog than she was. When you get thrown by a high amplitude throw, even if you're like a really good grappler, it takes you like 30 seconds to recognize, oh shit, I'm actually good on the ground, right? So like I've gone against people who are like really good wrestlers or really good judokas where I know on the ground I am superior. I will submit them in two minutes. But if they throw me, it takes me like a good 30 seconds to a minute to remember, oh yeah, I'm better than them, right? So I think part of that, to Jason's point, is that when she just throws you and makes you feel like an idiot, it takes you a while to mentally recover. And so during that time, Valentina looks really good on the ground and maybe secures a grappling position that maybe even with your better grappling, you can't get out of, which isn't to say that everybody Valentina is fighting is necessarily better than her on the ground. But I think that's why the parody looks even worse. I think that's a great that's a great point, Sam. I think there when you get thrown like that, there is like a neuro disconnect between the brain and <laughs> the pro the proprioceptors of the body that tell you like where your joints are in space. You're like, what happened? <laughs> right? It, and and while you're trying to process it in real time, the person on top of you is allowed to punch you in the fucking head <laughs> yeah. right? or elbow you in the face. And that's a lot to that's a lot to deal with and make like real time decisions um, in an instant. So um, some people are just wired to immediately respond, um, and they're the type to be that like would wouldn't notice that their arm was cut off in a sword fight. They'd still be they'd still be swinging it right. They'd still be swinging on the ground. Guys like Marab, like it'd still be going even when they're out. <laughs> but the normal person, well, I mean normal, I mean the non outlier. I'm talking about normal fighters. Even have to take that moment and go. What sent me ass over elbows? Like, let me, I'd rather figure it out for a second so that it never happens again because there's, there's something very dominant about being thrown. Now, people who have been thrown through, like wrestlers who have been thrown and gone against other world-class wrestlers or even high-level college wrestlers, that's not the first time for it. So, you know, hey, they're always looking to immediately recover because no one wants to get pinned. When that, when you aren't training that on the regular, it takes a while for the brain to catch up. And Muay Thai as well. And and specifically with Valentina and Muay Thai, when I went back to watch her footage, that's something she would do to punctuate rounds. That she would not only she would not even just do like the Muay Thai, you know, trips or anything like that. Like she would do straight up like throws, dominant throws, and sometimes even land knee on belly or close to mount, even though it was a Muay Thai fight. And it was, you know, it was strictly just for to to, to, to fuck with her opponent, to show dominance, to 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 kind of show to your guys' point. And that's something she's done in multiple sport. Okay, so pattern. What was Shevchenko doing well to make Murphy so passive? And was there anything that was working for Murphy? Not really, because uh, to Jason's previous point, people do give a lot, uh, a lot of grief. And there have been performances mainly up at Bantamweight against Nunez that kind of maybe pull my hair out. Or maybe I thought, you know, she could have offered more or, or pressure to, to, to maybe create those counter opportunities. But whether she was pressuring to create them or allowing... Murphy to try her best. Uh, Murphy was just playing right into her wheelhouse. 
there essentially wasn't a ton of feints there. And I was kind of worried as well how Murphy would do against Southpaws. There wasn't a lot of footage there. She fought Carmouche, but Carmouche went orthodox. And then she lost to Montano in the Tough House in the two-rounder with not extensive footage on. So it was really tough to tell, um, especially, uh, but I think it really was problematic because if you look at Murphy, most of her career, she's really from beginning to more evolved Murphy. She still really likes those inside parries uh, and right-handed leads. And she'll finish with you know her lead, which is great. Those are all great things. Uh, but um, if you are really used to that, uh, not so much the right-handed lead, that'll work fine, I suppose, with the open stance matchup, obviously. But as far as doing it off of pairing someone's right, uh, you know, uh, uh, left uh, lead when it's going to be a left power now, I think it could really throw you off. Um, and with not having the footwork and feints, she couldn't really hook off her jab uh, like she's been actually doing much more of, which I thought would have been a better route for her. I wrote my breakdown uh, that that trend. Uh, Mur Murphy's got an underrated left hook and left hook underrated shot against southpaws, but without the proper footwork and just having that, that speed power feints, um, she couldn't get in early. And then I think kind of similar to TKZ Ortega without the concussive, well, she probably got some concussive damage too, but not as obvious as like the spinning elbow dynamic shot. One of those hard shots, certainly, and I, I don't mean to say it in a negative derogatory, like fighters are scared. I don't mean it that way, but for lack of better words, one of the shots scared her off. So that became clear. And then we don't really get an honest look. Now we kind of have, Again, the mental part of fighting, right? The unspoken part of it. That side was kind of not just won, but open, closed, and shut rounds before the uh, the time the fight actually ended. So hard to tell. Next, we have a middleweight fight between returning Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler. This was a rematch from a fight they had 17 years ago, which is a testament to how long they've been fighting. Lawler hadn't won a fight in four years, and Diaz hadn't fought in six years. The fight was moved up from welterweight to middleweight per request from Nick Diaz, which was a bad sign. So were some of the videos coming out. Now, out of good taste, I don't want to break down the fight. What I want to get is a reaction to how the fight ended and Diaz's statements after the fight, because it looked like to me, Diaz took a knee to say he was done. Then he said in the interview, he didn't even know how this fight got set up and implied his management took advantage of him, going back to the manager problems that we talked about earlier with Brian Ortega. Now, if you followed Nick Diaz throughout his career, he's had ups and downs with Cesar Gracie, who was both his trainer and manager. At one point, Gracie was no longer a part of his life after a falling out where Diaz accused Gracie of not knowing how to manage or set up camps and that Gracie was using him. I don't even know if Caesar Gracie was in any of the corners of any of the other members of the scrap pack in any of their last fights in the last five years. But now it seems like Caesar Gracie is back. So I don't know if Gracie is his manager again or the one that set up this fight or he's just moral support. I'm just putting that out there. So Dan, as a longtime MMA writer, what did you think about this matchmaking and the way the fight ended, including the interview? Um, the matchmaking, not so much a problem with it as far as these older fighters go. I'm a fan of having them face uh, fellow elder statesmen. And I know it's easy to say in the lead up and, and in hindsight that it's still a you know, mismatch and that what are we doing? But you think about it in terms of Robbie Lawler's last 
knockout win was in 2015, which is the last time Nick Diaz fought. It doesn't sound as crazy in those proportions. And uh, I'll spare the No Country for Old Men parallel. I'll just quote that scene between Ellis and uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character. Um, and that's just a great scene that I feel like sums up whatever's going on in Diaz's head and, and what, 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 that, what to make of that. Uh, but as far as the ending goes, I feel like it parallels kind of, and especially as you mentioned Gracie, it parallels a lot with what uh, we saw with Ortega and a theme there where there was a Gracie, there's, you know, camp turmoil. And say what you will about the Gracie in both camps and corners, right? And, and perhaps there is some truth to what Nick said, which would make sense. You know, Nick got really big. And, you know, sometimes that, you know, uh, that whole, that family style set up a restaurant, it's not really set up to go corporate, right? There can be a lot of problems making that transition. But you run through its phase, the business goes bankrupt, it's kind of semi-retired. Um, you have nowhere to go. And you've, you know, been partied out. And people, real people have really used you then maybe a guy like Gracie doesn't seem so bad. And going back to your family, you know, he got back into coaching, which really kind of spoke to the maturity. Um, I felt like that was more than the real narrative of him getting out of his, of his party phase. It wasn't to come back and fight and be some super fighter again. It feels like we're seeing more Nick Diaz, the coach and the person, uh, which makes more sense of why he was much more realistic. And he's always been honest for people that want to cut through the shtick that's been placed upon him that he doesn't place upon himself. Um, he, he has always been honest, but I, I, he was much more sensible, more mature, um, about it. And the difference between him and Ortega and with, I felt like it's pretty, pretty apropos tying in with the UFC and how they're heavily promoting uh, Hispanic heritage month, which is fine. And it, it makes me, but it always reminds me of the question where I've talked to you about the Sam and I've messaged actual, um, UFC fighters to ask them to make sure that I'm not talking out of my ass here, which, which I'm not. It's also a reminder that, like, oh wow, okay, it's it's UFC once again completely ignoring Asian Heritage Month, but we're doing all the other ones, okay. But then part of me wonders, like, maybe it's good that they ignore us, you know, uh, <laughs> Sam, because like if you look at like the real bullshit, like you know, like uh, bootstrapping, you know, attitude, like go to someone, it's about hard, it's about even if you're taking damage, like even before this fight happens, right? Like these are the things they're playing, and or take this post fight speech, and I'm not trying to bring us back there, I'm, I'm looping it in to your answer and i'll pass the baton but in ortega's post fight speech he's repeating those same again kind of like his manager wanted to make sure to push the brand right because that's more important than fighter health and that bleeds through and seeps through that bootstrap mentality for the fighters to where ortega's going you know this is what mexican fighters are about it's from Cotasol and heart and you know what i feel like the crowd was cheering just as much for diaz for making the sensible decision and going you know what i'm i'm done i'm not even gonna let anybody else take this from me i'm gonna i'm gonna call it my own self and as i explained in my podcast that's one of the few dignities you have sadly if you're lucky enough to have that um and take it like diaz did and good on him and, and i'm happy to say that i don't see a lot of negative stuff toward diaz not that there should be toward making that decision but i couldn't help think of the parallels between those two stoppages how we go about them and how whether it's through the ufc heritage or the machismo that exists in many societies um just how how damaging that can be uh real quick what what was the cormac mccarthy no country for old men quote when do you die 1909 oh i mean was it right away or in the night or when was it i believe it's that night she buried him the next morning Digging in that hard old caliche. 
what you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. I, I think they realize that, you know, like, like the quote is, you know, the more, the more time you spent trying to get back what was lost, the more it's going out the door. And I think Nick realized that at a certain point, he stepped in, even if he knew he had it coming. All these heritage months, they're just propaganda to tell the fighters, if you're from this ethnicity, you have to fight till you die. Even like for women, when they're doing some type of thing for women, women are brave. We're just as strong as men and we just go out on our shield. Yeah. It just becomes a new conduit to promote and push the UFCs, like how Jason likes to talk about it, the swanging and banging, right? <laughs> Forget the defense, just swang and bang, right? Oh, I fucking hate it. <laughs> you know, you know that. I, I, I've been biting my tongue for a while. Half of what you get from me is only half of what you get from me, right? Um, the other half I sit on because, uh, again, I, I still try to make a bit of a living in this industry. So, but yeah, I, I don't like it. So, Jason, then what was your reaction to how the fight ended, really, where Nick Diaz took a knee because he knew nobody else was going to save him? Well, I'll start by saying uh, Dan's reference to No Country for Old Men is about as appropriate uh, for the, the Nick Diaz circumstance that, uh, that he could have possibly pulled from, uh, because I'm a huge Cormac McCarthy fan. And there's, nice. there's another line. There's, right? He's, he's outstanding. And especially if you've ever read Blood Meridian and you want to apply any of these, um, these philosophies uh, from any of these quotes towards fighting, another, another great line from No Country for Old Men. And this is what I think in the Dia, Nick Diaz fight, how it ended is uh, you never know what worse luck your bad luck has saved you from. Oh, shit. Yeah. That chills, yeah. That's a great one. Applicable too, sure. Oh yeah. And I've I've met Nick, and I was a huge Nick Diaz hater at first. I owned a portion of Syndicate Mixed Martial Arts with John Wood. Nick Diaz came in, and, and John and I had some like competing philosophies on how some fighters should train. And when Nick Diaz came in, he said he didn't like what he was seeing from the team, and he thought it was a he he had some pointed things to say. And then he and I went and some other people went out for lunch and we had some great discussions and the, the, those pearls of wisdom you get through um, relative incoherent lead ups. And I think Sam pointed that out. Um, like that's, that's how he's been. I owned a uh, syndicate from like, tw like in 2015 or 2014, I owned a small portion of it. And uh, I really, liked nick as a human being after that it took me a little, little while to come away and become a, a fan because i just didn't get it i didn't get what the like the the complaining after not beating a wrestler because you know you're, you're allowed to learn like defensive wrestling in this sport or there's always boxing or there's always kickboxing i didn't see like, i know jujitsu is your strong point but you might want to get good at grappling as a whole instead of complaining about it um but the more he took on the almighty machine, the more I, I like started deleting my old post on Facebook in case he ever looked at anything or on, on Instagram. Like when I was hating, I'm like, delete, 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 delete. Okay. So I be, <laughs> because I became a big fan for, for what he stood for. And when he stayed down, I, I don't think I've ever been as proud of another human being in a losing effort as I was right there. 
you know, there was a little bit of ambiguity that I felt or ambivalence between like the, I felt some, some sorrow for seeing him lose that way. Um, but at the same time, some pride in the way that he lost. And it was a, a tough thing to sort of rationalize in my head. So, um, seeing him take that stand and then have that fight, that post fight interview, it took me from like heartbroken to prideful and proud to heartbroken again. Uh, but at the same time, like me looking at, at my wife and saying, like, this is the sport. Like this is mixed martial arts, exploitative, short sighted, manipulative, um, no consideration of the long game. No one wants to to edify or guide some of these folks early. And this is a legend of the sport having to like save himself from himself because no one else is willing to step up to do it. And then you hear the the same tropes, the fighter fight, fighters fight cliche. Well, they do a lot of shit too, man. They pay bills. Fighters struggle fighters suffer fighters thrive fighters are husbands their their wives their fathers there's a lot going on there to, to reduce it to fighters fight is is the closest thing to like that uh the the days of the romans and that fucking blood sport slavery that that had endured then i hate it i fucking hate it like if you're if your product is Nick Diaz. Nick Diaz should duly, be duly compensated. And I'm, I'm tired of the, well, this wouldn't exist to this extent without Dana White. I'm like, guys, you forget that this sport was here before then, right? It, 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 was, it was here before then. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to speak on it without saying some shit that will either get me sued, banned, or beat up or possibly shot. So I'm just going to stop right here and I'm going to, I'm going to transition it back to you guys. Yeah, I should take a note from Jason there. I, I feel like I've, I, um, I'm my honesty on things definitely, uh, <laughs> to the point now when I see like certain jobs get filled that like people tell me I'm qualified for, I'm like, ah, that's because I think black lives matter. Okay. I get it. <laughs> Not obviously direct one-to-one, but, uh, you know, I definitely, uh, have some, have some, have some opinions that range, even if they're not crazy. You know, they involve sticking up for human rights and, and fighters having, you know, uh, the, their portion of the rights as human beings. It just it's, still feels like it's met with craziness. So I understand that sentiment there. But I, I totally sign off on everything you say for what it's worth, Jason. And, and it, it, it crushes me because the only way, like, fighters will thrive is if the fighters themselves are allowed to thrive. And if you want to talk about any kind of trickle down, well, there's a reason why fighters go from camp to camp or they stay solely with a camp that is sort of like ingrained in the whole like UFC structure. Um, it, it, you see winning fighters who go five, six, seven, sometimes 10 or 11 and 0 that jump to a different camp. And the camp does not, hasn't made them better. They just created that opportunity for them. Now, there's a reason why that sort of nepotism exists. And it's so that they can consolidate control because if a bunch of individuals from outside your fucking UFC clique got together, then all of a sudden stars that aren't part of your system and your mechanism of control start to work together. And then the power falls on the side of the labor. 
and they don't want that. So they've able they've been able to consolidate power by consolidating teams and consolidating that access to the UFC and then predatory contracts like nine fight deals at 11 and 11 for fighters on the ultimate fighter or whatever they've got. Um, and it's structured as such. I guess it's some, you can call it smart business or business acumen, but all it is is predatory. And if you've ever seen a fighter and I'll say right now, there's some guys doing commentary that are, I mean, if you think that it's just awkward because they're dumb, listen to them do commentary two and three years ago. They were better. There's some cognitive decline. And I'm not even going to say a name or two because everyone's going to jump my shit for it. But there is no concern for them. They've been, they've been, uh, they're, they're products. They are commodities. They are no longer human beings. And so long as there are eyes on your product, then and it can generate sales. Um, that's how they're going to continue to play it. So, I mean, I tweeted this out. Would Nick Diaz have taken this fight? Would he have fought if there was a fighter pension? And everybody was unanimously, no, he wouldn't have fought if he had a pension. And what was interesting is I listened to a Carlos Condit interview recently, post-retirement. Never heard the guy ever talk about unions or fighters uh, organizing or needing to come together to have rights. And now that he's retired, I heard him actually talk about it. I heard him talking about fighter pensions. So it also speaks to your point, Jason, about how constrained they are in the things they could talk about because of the UFC machine. And only when they're out, do you hear them talking about this stuff. And we saw an example of that with Nick Diaz, where if there were safety nets like that, a lot of these fighters would never come back. I don't think, I really don't think they would. And how many, how many NDAs were they forced to sign so that they can talk negatively, negatively of the UFC? And how much litigation have they been threatened with if they've even sort of alluded to it or if they had balls enough to just go out and out break it? Like the, the stress of dealing with cognitive, cognitive decline because of, of fight experience compounded by the stress of bankruptcy because the UFC, the one you spilled blood, the, the company you spilled blood for, so they could profiteer is threatening to sue you. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the utter di- disrespect. Imagine the contempt that that would breed. Um, maybe these fighters feel it. Maybe they don't. Maybe there's some cognitive dissonance there. Maybe there's just some... Um, denial. Yeah, there is yeah, some denial. Or maybe they're holding on to that 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 last bastion or last beacon of hope that there is uh, some potential that they will be brought into the fold. You know, maybe they'll get like uh, that cush job, or maybe they'll end up on the mic. Maybe they will. Maybe maybe they won't. But my, my concern for these athletes, and like it goes beyond just concussive trauma. Um, I've had, I've had multiple neck surgeries. Um, I wrestled from the time I was seven years old. I had disc replacement surgery at 33 before Pennsylvania had even legalized mixed martial, mixed martial arts. Um, and given like the scar tissue and blood flow, uh, and the change of the lordotic curve in my spine, I noticed some cognitive decline. Um, and you can see how I sort of struggled with even the word denial that happens to me every once in a while. Um, I try to do my best and I've, I've fought, I, I, 
sparred way too hard for way too long. Um, my I've had very few amateur MMA fights because I couldn't get licensed after my second one. I mean, I was already in my, my mid-30s and Pennsylvania didn't, didn't seem worthy to grant me a license, but that's probably in my best interest given, um, you know, uh, my body was already starting to fall apart. But to, to combat that, uh, and I, I haven't been hit in the head nearly as much as anyone else. I think it was more from wrestling. In wrestling, you can have some concussive trauma too, blast doubles over and over, guys heavy on the head, hand fighting, clubbing. But it's not just about concussive trauma from punching. I mean, fighting out of guillotine chokes or uh, getting caught in a triangle and some of the damage that starts to happen in the cervical spine, that can create some blood flow difficulty, which there you're seeing more and more uh, studies come out. And the, the possibility of that having some, some long-term and semi-immediate effects on cognitive ability. And you're seeing that in combat sports, the athletes, in grappling, if you consider that a combat sport, and certainly in fight sports as well especially when you see the reversal of the lordotic curve. And these are things that, that fighters don't know, let alone understand. And I, I combated that by getting a master's in marketing, and then I'm finishing up a second master's. I'm finishing up my MBA. Now, Dan, where do you think this leaves Robbie Lawler? It's tough because he fought great and it brought it out of him, and he even admitted that himself. But is it, you know, is Robbie, you know, back? I don't think so. Um, but unfortunately, I do worry that if it's big enough, they're going to put him in a fight back to these other fights where they use him as a gatekeeper to build up a guy and we're just going to see him get washed out with volume and and stuff again. So that's kind of my worry there. Um, but again, Robbie, you know, he, he looked good. Um, he's game. He still has a lot of the athleticism intact. Um, his eyes still look to be there in exchanges. You know, we really saw that with that, with the, uh, you know, the, the slipping and rolling that we kind of saw in that first Hendricks fight. We saw a bit of that with the Southpaw, uh, Southpaw dynamic. So he was passing a lot of those tests for what it's worth for me. I can't look into his brain, obviously. That's the big question. But uh, I do worry that they're just going to throw him, you know, as UFC tends to reward you uh, when you, when you, when you're victorious, they're going to throw you into some other, you know, even bigger match that maybe you shouldn't be in. So we'll see. Let's talk about the heavyweight fight between Curtis Blades and Jarzinho Rosenstrike, with Blades winning a unanimous decision. Let's start with you, Jason. What are the things you like from Blades where you're like, this guy can be champion? And what were some of the things that gave you pause where you're like, maybe not? That's a good question because the, the fight in and of itself was, was a relative dud. Um, Blades has, has a ton of tools. He's big, he's tall, he's strong, he's super athletic. I, his wrestling is outstanding. I wonder why someone didn't just take Curtis Blades and lock him in a boxing gym for, for two years again and make sure he was like doubly head geared up so I didn't get too much brain trauma um, and teach him really, really how to box and process danger in terms of punches coming at him. And then then give him a reprieve for six months, and then lock him in a kickboxing or Muay Thai gym for another two years. And then say, all right, how about some MMA? So that his wrestling didn't keep him from progressing as a fighter. His wrestling is so good that it's actually made him a worse fighter because he can win fights by not fighting and solely wrestling. That's no way to improve. Like, 
winning becomes detrimental to actually improving when you approach it that way. And I think that's where Blades is. Like even if he continues to win, like he's more flinchy since the, since his, his knockout to Derek Lewis. And uh, he, he even shoots with his eyes closed. Um, I think that I think they referenced that in the fight. Um, and you're you're fighting, and Rosenstrike supposedly a good good striker, but I mean you'd actually have to strike during the fight for that to 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 unfold, wouldn't you? I mean he rarely <laughs> does anymore. He's very very tentative and not strategically tentative. Uh, Rosenstrike doesn't set up traps, doesn't set traps. He doesn't bait you in. He just sort of like flinches you into thinking like. Hey man, if you don't do something, I won't do something. And a significant amount of time passes with no action. And that's uh, as much as I shit on the MMA or the UFC telling like telling everyone how to fight. Like you can't be fan unfriendly and think you're <laughs> going to have a career in this business or win a decision, right? You're not going to spend win a decision on your back and like holding someone in that lockdown position and and not tr- even attempting to improve. So I think I think Rosenstrike's time in the UFC is limited. Um, if anyone blames Blades for a boring fight, I mean they really need to reconsider what uh, what they the onus on uh, Rosenstrike to some extent because he did he did very little, and that's not the the first time for him. Now, Dan, you do a lot of film study. Did Blades always close his eyes in his fight, or is this a product of the Lewis KO? Because I don't just mean closing his eyes before he shoots. There were other moments where I caught him just closing his eyes when punches were coming or just closing his eyes and ducking his head to defend. Yeah, I don't think it was as bad. I, I agree with what, what, what Jason said. It's, it's more obvious now. Uh, before, he would like do stuff like when he ducked, it was changing his level when he would roll off of a cross, which was smart. And I don't know why he really got away from those. It was, goes well with his double leg sensibilities and getting in on the hips. Um, it's great defensive boxing. And again, it's not something that you're asking. It's not too lofty of a technical task for a heavyweight because he's already shown to have done it. You know, like, like Jason says, he moves really well. He seems like a guy that you could do that proverbial lock him in the, you know, kickboxing arena for so, so long in the boxing arena for so forth. Um, but I will say that even though I agree with the, the criticism on Rosenstruck, I feel like they both could be criticized for the, the inactivity, but in different ways. And I'm one that's, that usually stands up for um, a big wrestling grinding fan. I'm a big fan of fighters getting fighters tired, extending the fight. Um, I'm a big proponent of judges to commentary to fans not giving enough credence to grappling work uh, from advancing to submission attempts, that there needs to be metrics for that. If we have metrics in the individual sports and we're supposed to have judging metrics that incorporates mixed martial arts, why do we have so many for striking and almost virtually none that we don't really credit for for grappling? That all being said, at heavyweight, it's a different game where I feel bad, kind of like what Jason said, where like I, I don't mean to be like, bang, bro, more aggression with that narrative. But I do feel like it applies more at heavyweight from a general sense, in the sense of the longer you keep someone in a fight, the more dangerous it could be, which was my potential worry and still is my potential worry with the Cyril Gone, right? You can outclass Nganu. Uh, that shouldn't surprise anybody if he does do that. But if you're dancing with Nganu for a certain period of time and you can't take him down, well, what's going to happen? And this is the reason why I picked Derek Lewis to beat Curtis Blades, not necessarily in the way that, he, way that he did, but Curtis Blades made me feel less crazy for that pick with the way he fought Rosenstruck, which was 
essentially like, dude, you're, you're, you're not making hay, you're not making hay by earning these positions. And as you saw the, you know, he said that Curtis was like, well, I wanted to fight safe because my eye was closed. Well, you actually, that, I didn't get close to, I believe the second round, which means you had a decent ground stanza, successful takedown and ground stanza to work before that could have prevented you from that eye uh, hurting, right? And we've seen him dominate guys with strikes and on the ground. He hasn't even had to go to one submission win in his whole career. And we've seen him be dominant. So it's not that he can't do it. It's not that it's not in his style. In his wrestling, you'll watch his wrestling tape. That was something that got him through. It was just an unbridled aggression. Like every match that I could get my hands on, it was just pure aggression from the guy. So it's not that these things aren't there. I feel like that sometimes fighters, you know, I love when fighters fight more technical. But sometimes this is one of those cases where it can be bad, you know, like you get the wrestler like a Phil Davis learning how to do backflip boxing. It's like, dude, that's not going to connect to your your game and what you're good at. And kind of like a, a Phil Davis, like, dude, Blades actually has some really good mat wrestling and rides and like ways to really kind of finish these fights. And as we saw, it almost becomes a detriment because you get your eyes closed. Right. And then, OK, now his, his, his what's his mentality? Well, I want to fight safe. Well, no, you just learned the lesson. What? you know uh you know as far as fighting air quote safe and heavyweight does for you you need to make hay with this position and get this dude out of here he's already proven with his low volume ass how dangerous he is even with not throwing anything get him out of there you know we don't need this to be a longer night you're going to be in five round fights with your division being weak so it's going to be even more of a problem if you don't get these guys out of here so it sounds contradictive to most of my opinions but i do feel like blades need, needs to be more aggressive when he gets to these positions yeah, you need to be offensive to be defensively responsible. Otherwise, eventually they're going to start hitting you and you're going to get hurt. Jason, is closing your eyes something a fighter can fix? Uh, I've seen it. I've seen it early in a fighter's career. Um, I had a I had a, a kid who was ex-military um, who I didn't think would, would ever fight for me. His name is Jim Rendero. He was good friends uh, with Felder. And he would close his eyes and turn his back. And I, I, we didn't know why it was just instinctual and the kid was tough and he was like a grizzled vet, but, uh, just closed his eyes and he had one or two fights with me and we had falling out, uh, and he went, went a different direction. And I think he fought three or four times after that. Um, and he won them all. And I watched his, his fights and he looked, he looked great. Like he became more competent. He ended up, um, I think he ended up losing to Randy Brown in an amateur fight and he just got mauled. I mean, he got hit with everything and he did not blink. <laughs> he did not flinch. He didn't run away. So yeah, that's a guy who's only four or four or five fights deep into an amateur career. Very early. Yeah. At this stage of the game, this advanced stage against like top tier competition. I don't know. I don't, I, I wouldn't think if you're doing if you're closing your eyes on your double legs, that's that's a concern. I know. I mean, you've wrestled your whole life. I don't know if in instinctually anyone who who competes in wrestling at a high level closes their eyes on their shots. Um, so it's it's got to be sort of an override for the natural inclination to penetrate, shoot to the hips, finish. To now start closing closing your eyes, I think there's some sort of like I don't know fear or protective component that uh, that there's sort of a, a glitch that's keeping them from you know competing optimally with eyes open. And maybe it's a temporary thing because he fought and got new twice and got stopped, and he fought 
Derek Lewis and got stopped, which very few people can survive those type of stoppages. So maybe it's not something he always had and he's developed it and maybe over time he'll just get over it. But in this fight, even with the uh, Rosenstrike's low volume, like with the knee or some of the other shots, it looked like Blaze was actually doing better than him striking-wise. But the only reason he got hit with those things is because he got caught in those moments where he was closing his eyes anyway. So it's almost like he couldn't see because his eye got closed up. But the reason why his eye got closed up was because he was closing his eyes and he couldn't see those strikes coming. So it became kind of a vicious cycle, which hopefully he can get over going forward. Well, I'll, I'll say this real quick. If there's anyone that can sort of uh, punch you into feeling gun shy, it's going to be uh, guys like Nganu uh, and Derek Lewis. <laughs> if, if that's going to happen, the the results of those those three fights against those two men, that'll do it. And that'll do it to anybody. Yeah. Yep. That'll put the fear of God in you. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thank you both for coming on the show and spending time with us. Dan, where can people find you, follow you, support you? Uh, just keep, I'll keep it simple. Uh, at Dan Tom MMA on Twitter is probably the only socials I'm really active on. And uh, most of my stuff's all reposted through there. So you can just uh, find me there and just want to say this has been awesome chatting with both of you. This was really awesome. Appreciate it. Jason, give us your social media. Uh, I'm on uh, almost all social media channels. I mean, I don't know what all of them are anymore, but I'm on three. <laughs> um, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, and and Twitter. I believe I'm the only Jason Sargas available, so it's not hard to find me. Um, I might start a website called everyonehatesargas.com. <laughs> Gentlemen, it was an absolute pleasure. Dan, big fan. Always a pleasure. To Sam, you know that. Uh, had a blast, guys. I really appreciate your time. Fan of both of you guys and a fan of Southpaw. Oh, yeah. Subscribe. Thanks for listening to Fight Study. Make sure to check out all of our other shows. Tell all your socially conscious friends about us. Support us on Patreon and get extra bonus content. But more than that, support us to help us keep this outlet going. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.